In an abandoned house in Poughkeepsie, New York, investigators uncover hundreds of videotapes that capture the horrifying details of a serial killer's decade of terror. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. So today we're going to do something a little different, and this is along the lines of our October spooky Halloween-themed horror movie series, and that we were recently guests on the Victims and Villains podcast chatting about the said film that I mentioned earlier that I have a very difficult time pronouncing for one reason or another. And uh, Victims and Villains is hosted by Josh Berkey, and in this episode today it's going to act as a companion piece to their episode talking about the film as well and as you know a lot of the time we'll talk about the true crime and the behind the scenes and then we will walk through the film itself and in this one if you want to get chelsea and i's thoughts on the film in general we chat with josh get his you know he talks about his thoughts as well and then he goes into a lot of the awesome and interesting and intriguing and mysterious behind the scenes of um, this movie. So please be sure to check out his episode. They'll be released around the same time. So, Josh, could you just take a, a little bit of time to talk about the goal, the sort of mission of your podcast, Victims and Villains? So Victims and Villains is very much a unique podcast, the way that you guys kind of take true crime and films based on those true crimes and marry them together. Uh, what we do over there is we also do pop culture and suicide prevention, and we marry the two together. Uh, we use the podcast as a way to invite independent creators, other podcasts on to talk about their projects, to talk about uh, some some things going on in pop culture. But we do it mainly to let people know that if they are struggling with suicide, addiction, self-harm or depression, that there's a better way, that hope is real, it's something that they can have. And we try to use the podcast as a way to uh, educate people and to connect them. So education and connection are really the, the hearts of why we do what we do. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really awesome mission and one of the things that you know Chelsea and I uh, have talked about is in the true crime realm and the horror movies you know we're talking about the horrific aspects of it and I think that your podcast gives a lot of the um, really humanistic side of things and we really like what you do over there on victims and villains so we're proud to not only participate in a couple of your episodes but have you on as a guest for this companion for October piece as you mentioned some of the topics you cover are there any favorite episodes so far that you have out there yes so when i get to introduce like people to our podcast they're always like well uh, what uh what episodes would you recommend starting with and it's uh, we have traditional episodes that we do where we'll pick a couple topics that are relevant for that week and we'll talk about them but um, my favorite two episodes that i always like recommending to people are ooze hope which is our 52nd episode. And that talks all about the importance of why we need mental health, uh, why mental health needs to be talked about more, uh, why people need to reach out. And uh, we're, just, we're just joined by a great slew of people uh, for that panel, which included my wife, Ron at Webster, and his wife, Kate, who we do the identity network with, and Andrew Karen, who by day is a mental health specialist and by night is a comic book writer. And uh, 
uh, also to our artists, our in-house artists, uh, Candice Camilleri, who uh, is just so talented that uh, we just we had a great time having all of those people on. And the second episode that I highly recommend is Belmont and Bones. That is part two to our Castlevania crossover with our pod brothers over at the Retro Gamers. It's facebook.com slash Retro Gamers podcast. And that episode is all about the Castlevania anime that was, but even more important than that, it was a launching point for us to talk about eating disorders and bring awareness to those issues as well. That's very cool. And that's a unique twist on uh, on that sort of topic. I think that, uh, you know, I'm always impressed with how well you guys tie things together with geek culture, with popular culture. Chelsea and I are big nerds. We're, <laughs> we're, we're geeks. Uh, <laughs> we're huge nerds. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And, uh, you know, we all, we all have our, we both have our things that we like. Uh, well, if it's not horror movies for me, it's, you know, my Star Wars nerdery. Oh, Chelsea's got a, a, a list of things too. <laughs> but um, yeah, we have a lot of fun. So uh, we, we really like the show and uh, are really, really glad to, uh, to team up with you on a couple of projects so far. So um, yeah, thanks for the overview. I will be sure to, um, well, we will um, include links to those episodes in the show notes so that all you listeners can and check those out on Josh's show. All right, diving into this film that I'm trying to avoid saying the name because I cannot pronounce it. I'm going to have Chelsea say it. Pepsi? Exactly. Yes. Since the um, episode of Victims and Villains has covered, as I mentioned earlier, the notoriety of the film, along with details about the long wait for this movie on home video, we're going to chat about some true crimes that may have inspired the film, along with a discussion of the movie itself and chelsea is going to kick us off with some true crime to um just get the conversation started i went back and forth on what to cover between the topic that i chose and stockholm syndrome but i ended up going with the topic that i chose which is the history of snuff films so the term snuff films was first coined in 1971 and it was actually invented in relation to the manson family murders surprisingly i had no idea going into it that i had no idea what the origin was but it was first written about in a book by ed saunders about the case and it was called the family the story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion. And in this book, he claimed that the family may have made what he at first called brutality films, but later ended up calling snuff films. And these were only rumors. There's no evidence that these films actually existed, other than the fact that the family did own three Super 8 cameras and they had stolen an NBC truck. Um, so an Ooh. anonymous, yes, an anonymous one-time member of the group told Ed Saunders that this movie existed that showed a female victim who had been decapitated and was lying on the beach. And it didn't show the murder happen, it just showed her body. But it turned out that this person had not actually seen the film himself, he had just heard about it from other members. So we have no clue whether this video actually exists. Snuff films... I think as most people think of them, um, like snuff films being on the black market or commercially distributed in any way, they just don't exist. <laughs> so films of murders do exist, but an actual genre of films as snuff films 
don't exist. It's basically an urban legend. In 1976, there was a movie released called Snuff, and they spread this rumor to hype it up that the movie was depicting real murders of this actress. And obviously it was not true, but it did pay off. A lot of people went and saw that film because of these rumors. A more recent one in 1991, there was a film called Flower of Flesh and Blood, and this depicted a samurai supposedly hacking an actress to death. It was part of a film series called Guinea Pig, and this movie actually came into the possession of Charlie Sheen, who thought it was real and turned it over to the FBI. <laughs> um, but but it was it was not real. So um, there have been instances of serial killers who filmed their victims, but for these killers, it was filming the torture leading up to the murder rather than the murder itself. Uh, one pair of killers who did this was Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. They raped, tortured, and murdered 11 to 25 women in a remote cabin in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And the police ended up finding two videotapes that showed them torturing two of their victims. But again, it did not actually show the killing. Another perhaps more well-known one, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, a.k.a. the Ken and Barbie killers. Paul Bernardo actually got his start as a serial rapist. He was called the Scarborough Rapist, um, but he was not caught until after he married Carla Homolka and they together committed three murders. They abducted, tortured, raped, and killed three teenage girls, and they videotaped a lot of the rape and torture. Um, actually, when they ended up getting caught, Carla Homolka turned on Paul Bernardo and confessed to the crimes to the police, but she made certain that no one saw the videotapes before she actually went on trial. So she ended up getting 12 years for the crimes, even though it turned out that she was much more involved than she had said. So the tapes actually show her really participating in these crimes and this this deal that was made between her and the authorities in Canada became popularly known as the deal with the devil. So, so she's out of prison now. You know, in terms of real snuff films, you know, although they are not marketed, there are obviously in this day and age real videos of real murders. And one of them, I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, but it's the Nepropetrovsk Maniacs. So this was a group of three teenagers in Ukraine, and they ended up killing 21 people. But what they're most notorious for is this four-minute phone video that shows them murdering 48-year-old uh, Sergei Yatzen Yatzenko with a hammer. So this video was leaked to a shock site under the name Three Guys, One Hammer. And this was very recent. I forgot to write down the year, but I, I obviously did not watch the video, but I remember when this news hit and it was huge, which I'll get into with the last case I want to discuss. There's another very famous one. This is Luca Magnata. So he was a Canadian killer. He murdered and dismembered Lin Jun, who was an international exchange student, and he mailed body pieces of this person to elementary schools and political offices. So it sounds twisted 
expected, but it was very calculated by him. He wanted to be famous, this guy. He desperately wanted to be famous. There's video of him applying to a bunch of these reality TV shows, videos of him interviewing for these shows that he wanted to be on. There was a show for people who underwent a bunch of plastic surgery, shows for being male models, is like any opportunity he would take. And he also even, to tie it back, he claimed to be in a relationship with Carla Homolka online. And it was all about him seeking fame. He ended up being inspired by the success of this Three Guys, One Hammer video. And that is why he planned and carried out his murder. He himself uploaded the video to bestgore.com under the name One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. So I'm not going to get into the details, but you can imagine how the crime was carried out based on that. And he fled the country after committing the murder, but he was eventually apprehended. This is my favorite part. He was eventually apprehended in Berlin while Googling himself in an internet cafe. So... Oh, the irony. Yes, I guess someone looked over his shoulder and was like, oh, this guy is looking at pictures of himself on a website where he's wanted for this brutal killing. So, so yes, that is how he got caught. And that is my little mini discussion on snuff films. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's some heavy stuff, right? I, I just feel... Uh, yeah, I don't want to see any of that, really. <laughs> So I always was kind of led to believe that snuff films essentially were like a more violent version of pornography where you would essentially see a woman raped and murdered. Is that a wrong assumption? Not necessarily raped. It is just anyone being murdered. So it's a video of someone being murdered essentially is a snuff film. But I feel like we think of it as a, a commercial product and it's really not. And I think that's saying it's a more violent version of porn it's entirely separate than porn porn is fine it's i think there can be a sexual aspect to a snuff film but it's really about the murder it doesn't matter i think who the victim is or how it's carried out it's just a murder on film was my understanding learn something new all the time all right so keeping in uh in line with that topic of real life snuff films we're going to dive into a discussion of poughkeepsie tapes, which are a series of tapes that were found by a serial murderer in New York. And, um, you know, one of the things we like to do on the show um, is discuss our first impressions of the movie. This film was initially very difficult to get a hold of. As told in the episode on victims and villains, um, we go into detail. Josh talks about, you know, the challenges the studio had bringing this film to market. And, um, you know, now that it's available via Blu-ray from Screen Factory, I've got it sitting right here on our desk as we record. You know, it's pretty easy to get a hold of these days. In the past, it has not. But Josh, if we could start with you, just if you wanted to give some impressions on the things that you liked. I really enjoyed, uh, I think one thing that this film does well is the unsettling is like we had talked about in the when you guys were on victims was the just the unsettling nature of how the the killer moves and his theatricality it's weird and and freaky and glorious all at the same time and to me i think that that's really if you can create a, a monster without actually having to see him kill i feel like those 
make the most intriguing horror films in in my book. All right, cool. So Chelsea, what do you got to say? Well, I, I'm going to be very brief because I think if you want to hear my detailed response, you should check out Victims and Villains. <laughs> um, I, I talked extensively about my feelings, but one thing I really liked about the movie is that it felt very original. The style of the movie, it's a mockumentary style that I have not really seen done before in a way that's not comedic. I feel like most of the time you hear mockumentary and you think of something funny, <laughs> but this movie is very much not funny. But it's it's interesting. They follow kind of the style of a documentary interviewing FBI agents and family of the victims uh, interspersed with you know, little news segments and obviously bits from the tapes themselves. So that was one thing that I did like about the movie. All right, cool. Yeah, um, I think you... You know, you both mentioned a couple of things that stood out to me about the film that were positive in terms of, you know, Josh, you mentioned the theatrical villain. He does um, feel like inspired by a lot of the horror movie villains of the past in a more realistic setting that feels a bit like a series of snuff films that said villain has made. You know, I think I think there's a lot to like, but also I think there are some things to dislike. I think the major thing that I I did not like about it was I did not like the killer himself. I did not, he did not feel realistic as someone who reads a lot about true life serial killers. He felt um, cartoony. I want to say, so you know the saying like a, a man's man? right? He felt like a serial killer's serial killer. He was like the idea that a serial killer would have like the perfect serial killer where he's really smart and as we'll get into in the plot he somehow makes his victim fall in love with him. It just felt, it felt like a fantasy that was not my fantasy. So I I did not like that about it. I think that kind of jumping off that point as well, the talking about, you know, the villain falling in love with him, obviously Stockholm Syndrome, we've, we've seen it happen, but you kind of see that slow progression throughout the film of where she starts to where she ends. And I think one of the uh, the things that that's that kind of like the, the Cheryl Dempsey aspect of it, one of the things that I think the film does well, because you do kind of see that in the background kind of slowly starting to perk up. And then it finally is just like, boom, when you have that final interview at the end. But I think that uh, one of the obviously this is not a perfect film, um, not by any means. And one of the things that I feel like the film see, I don't know, because like I, I'm this that this time around, I feel like do watching this as a reviewer because I had actually seen this more than you guys had seen this before. Um, I think that this film is like you like David said, it's it's a uh, content wise. It's, it's one of the hardest films to, to get through. But yeah. I, I just I don't know like content wise because I, I feel like to me like I, I loved the original style of this I, lo- I really dug the music of it like there's not a lot about this film that I didn't didn't like when you do a film about you know a man who abducts children and, and rapes women and beats them into submission it's it's gonna be a hard topic to talk about either way. 
Yes, definitely. And um, speaking of talking about it, we're going to walk through the film itself. So that could be challenging um, on its own just because of the number of victims and as well as the horrific nature of the crimes. So uh, there's a laundry list of victims in this film that we slowly learn about um, as they go through the tapes as we talk to the investigators behind this case in particular. And I just, I guess we should just really start off with the thing that I guess that's just really awful. And that is eight-year-old Jennifer Gorman, who is the, she's the first victim that we, we see um, abducted. Yes. So they portray this in the movie as his first victim. So although it is on tape the way his other ones are is we are we are meant to think that it is more impulsive and less planned the killer clearly put less work into this victim you know whereas future victims seem to be more of the tortured and mutilated variety and i guess many of them are dismembered and scattered about upstate new york this was just a girl that he saw when he was driving by and decided to take her you do see a bit of video from his perspective of going up and talking to this girl who, you know, she's she's pretty hesitant. She knows to not talk to strangers, but, you know, knowing that is not going to help her in this situation because he has decided that he wants to kill her and he does the yeah this this scene was probably one of the hardest to watch not having any kids of my own but you know just imagine like that like this is something that that happens all the time and just the the interaction like it said like the hesitation you can you can hear it in her voice she's obviously very smart very knowledgeable not to talk to weird dudes like this especially one that you know talks with videotape but yeah it's just this this like this one scene jennifer gorman was probably one of the most uncomfortable scenes to watch in this film because you could tell that he's trying to force the conversation and i'm like one of those guys that like when someone's trying to be like funny and they're not it's like really uncomfortable and awkward to see weird and awkward humor played out on screen and it's uncomfortable to me so like you can obviously see the like the dialogue between him and jennifer gorman was awkward and uncomfortable and you know you want to see what it looks like through my perspective and then knocks her out like it's it's terrible I do want to say they they play a little clip of the 911 call from her mother where she's saying to 911 that you know there's blood in the yard and 911 says we have to wait 24 hours to file a missing persons report. That is not true for children. So if your child disappears, particularly if there is blood, basically if your child disappears at all under suspicious circumstances, that's what Amber Alert is. It is for missing children who are disappearing under, you know, circumstances where you would presume that they were abducted. And (laughs) that happened. That took me out of the movie for a moment. I yelled at David. I was like, that's not how it works. (laughs) Uh, So I guess that's the danger of knowing too much about a topic. Yeah, but it's good to know. If you don't know that, just, uh, yeah, child goes missing, please. Alert the authorities right away, immediately. So in typical horror movie setup, we have the Anderson family. This is the um, giving a stranger a ride to the gas station, which I was taught growing up in the 80s, picking anyone up 
hitchhikers having anyone in your car you will end up murdered and what happens sure enough this one i don't know if i like looked away or what but in my notes i had that the wife her husband is was murdered her his head was severed and then she was given a forcible c-section with the head sewn inside her womb and then she awoke to discover that this had happened and i thought that was a dream when i was looking this up oh no no i saw it happen during the movie yeah they don't show much of it they kind of pan down and you see the beginning of like something there and then later on when they show her body when they find it you see that it's like a human head in her stomach yeah it's it's particularly gross i would say yep but (laughs) yeah i mean this is and the time that this film comes out like you know you're you're really kind of starting to get into those torture porny esque films of like you know Hostel and and Saw and just some of those other films. I think those are probably the two most. Uh, this was right around the time Human Centipede was coming out, so you you really had those kind of films that were shocking to say the least. And I think a scene like this really, especially for a second and third victim, like this is a this is clearly a killer that really is is and this is this is kind of the the first bit of the film where you start to see that the the killer is not your average killer because he's not a child abductor and a child killer but he's got a mixed mo and he's you know obviously he's gonna do it to make it look like it's different people and um i think one of the things that i don't know if you guys are going to touch on this or not but there's a the the gas station footage where uh he looks right at the camera and he signs red house and that's where they find him like like that to me like i was just like man i was like that's a guy that knows what he's doing and is taunting you that you can't catch it yeah and i think there's a there's a point later on in the film where one of the investigators said you know they were possibly um what was the word that they were um a mixed killer rather than organized or disorganized killer is that the part yeah yeah and that's that's one of those things that where i started to be a little bit like they're almost kind of making him seem too smart it's that that kind of build up where it's like he's signing red house but he's not just signing where he hid it he's signing before he even abducted them and it's like ah he's so smart he planned it so far ahead it's like i i don't i don't know I just I will I can't really appreciate a movie where I'm supposed to think that that kind of thing is cool <laughs> cuz it's still someone killing people. I don't know. This is I feel like this movie is not for people who read a lot about real true crimes. This is not a movie for the the weak-hearted either. Yeah. Yeah. But it's I mean I I have quite the stomach for this in terms of what I have sought out on my own, but it's because I read so much that it's hard to to think of a serial killer being like cool. Besides obviously Hannibal Lecter, the best fictional serial killer of all time. He's cool, but not really anyone else. Just Hannibal. Fair enough. After this, these victims, there is a plot to the film for sure. It's not just all stream of conscious killings and you know our unofficial motto is that spoilers abound in terms of the films that we talk about so that's one of the things that we may be kind of blunt about throwing spoilers out there but this introduced us to a teenaged cheryl dempsey her story will come full circle as we walk through the rest of the film and it starts off in typical home invasion horror movie fashion where the killer is in the house and he's filming it you're seeing of course 
course, the tapes that he has made. You see she comes home. You see the surprise appearance by her boyfriend, Tim. And there's the dramatic tension that is created by her being home and then sort of an unexpected visitor. And of course, he murders Tim and poor Cheryl is abducted, which kind of kicks off the story, I guess. What did you guys think of that home invasion scene? Did it remind you of any other movies or did you feel like it was just a natural part of the narrative? Did it pull you out? This part of it really showed that because as he's building up, you know, he's stalking her and he's, you know, watching her. And I would probably uh, agree that and I, I don't probably read as much as Chelsea on true crime, so I probably don't know as much. But I think that at the same time that this is probably something that may be common around killers and victims, you know, studying who you're going to abduct, you know, really learning the schedule and, and the mastermind it kind of uh, at the same time. And there's that scene where he is actually waiting for her in the closet, in the shower, and it feels like it's got to be a, at least a four or five hours hours the past that you know he's just in the closet waiting and you know we had talked about on our show with you guys about you know the theatricality about you know him always wearing the masks like talking about Cheryl Dempsey now I'm kind of curious I don't remember there ever being a time where he is not in a mask around Cheryl Dempsey because when he is when he's in the waiting for it like the very brief glimpses you get of his face he's got that plague doctor mask like he he has that and you see that very briefly that when he kind of turns and after killing tim you see that that he has that mask on and he's had it on the entire time so i think that this dude is is a it's a patient guy. Yeah, definitely. His time is on his side. I guess the duration of the killings and the fact that he he waits so long at a certain point, um, which we'll get to. The fact that he plans and taunts the victim's mother. So he's abducted Cheryl, and then you know after seeing her, you know, plea on television, he goes to visit her and he films that. Her realization at the very end of that discussion that you know he is the abductor, I think, is just. Uh, it's it's really it's a it adds a really sick and twisted touch to the proceedings yeah yeah i agree i think that the abduction scene the lead up to it i liked it it felt very horror movie-esque um but a, a lot of the stuff with her was the stuff where it was pretty uncomfortable to watch not that it was graphic they were pretty careful to not be super graphic but it was disturbing it was really disturbing all right, so we talk about all these transitions that the uh, the killer has had. At one point, uh, he pretends to be a police officer, and there's one of those scenes where it's like his the woman that he abducts. Um, he slowly kind of he taunts her and reveals that he's not a police officer, in fact, and that does not occur until she is locked in the back of her car. And I was this scene. I mean, it was it was really scary. And I, you know, I felt for the victim. But the whole time I was wondering, like, how did he create this scenario so that that would happen? I mean, realizing that you're in the back of a, a police car. I think as the audience, I, I was like, well, she's going to get locked in there and she will not be able to escape. And yeah, that was kind of that was kind of awful. He's just sort of shifting, uh, shifting his persona, I guess, to fit the crime. So after he has abducted and I mean, we're presuming to have murdered several sex workers. He is now has earned the label of the Water Street Butcher, which feels I mean, that 
that certainly kind of feels like a serial killer uh, nom de plume, other than the fact that we don't hear that he has three first names, right? Well, we don't know his name. I'm sure that he has three, though. All the good serial killers have three. <laughs> True. Like uh, Charles Lee Ray, right? That's a uh, <laughs> old Chucky. Yeah. That's what exactly what I was going to say. All right. So um, now this part, we talk about shifting the narrative, shifting the persona. This is when the killer goes really hardcore and police officer James Foley is arrested. We see him tried. We see him convicted. We see that he is executed. And upon execution, we discover, well, I guess the killer reveals the fact that he created the scenario. He framed poor officer Foley. And um, that's just wow. I thought that was an interesting twist. Again, it's, you know, all of these scenarios are building up this killer's intelligence. And I think you're meant to be especially saddened by the fact that when this happens, I guess when he's exonerated, it's the same time as 9-11. So a lot of people don't even know that not only has the Water Street Butcher not been caught, but this person is actually innocent. So a lot of people still believe that Officer Foley is the Water Street Butcher when he's not adding insult to injury <laughs> for his family. For sure. And I think that uh, one thing that this film does really well in, in kind of perspectifying that into like that entire like narrative into really one brief sentence is when they're talking to the one guy towards the end and, uh, you know, he was kind of talking about how when this story broke, like if 9-11 hadn't happened, it would have been the biggest story of the century. You know, serial killer kills cop using justice system like that. And, you know, changing your M.O. to again, this is obviously a killer that is studying his victims. And to me, I feel like one of the scariest portions of this film is the way that he studies his victims. And I think the way that he studied Cheryl Dempsey, he definitely studies James Foley into, you know, knowing the habits. And obviously he knew the habits of, you know, of of him to, you know, go as far as to kill the prostitutes that he killed as well as also uh you know even have his sample of his semen in there and i think that that set this villain up even greater and like you're saying like this is this is obviously like a fantastical film like you know no killer is going to be really this smart to to change you know mo's up the, the like this way because I love that uh, there's that one scene in here where uh, you're talking to the FBI profiler gentleman and he's talking about, you know, we have multiple different FBI profiles and he's kind of going through and he's like 18 to 25 white male, 25 to 35 white male, 45 to 65 black male. And he's going through all of these, these profiles, you know, mixed killer organized. And he's kind of going through every aspect and every, every MO and every, a uh, profile that the FBI has producted on this guy is conflicting with one another. And I love that the last one is uh, he may be working as an FBI profiler and then just like, <laughs> freeze on that guy's face. I really think that guy is the killer. What do you think, David? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, I was like really curious. Is I mean, there it's a it's a likelihood. I mean, they could have changed or had one of the people that they interviewed for the the documentary or whatever it is um, that we are watching could have been one of the murderers, you know? I mean, very likely. It's a I high mean, possibility. The gentleman was crowning that we're talking about. You never do see the butcher's hairline, so... 
just saying that. Yeah, totally. So there's a... <laughs> on my notes, I call this scary scene with the Girl Scouts, which elevates the tension to sort of a next level because we've we've started it off. This serial killer obviously has no qualms about killing children. You know, the, the Girl Scouts are invited into the home and they, of course, break the rule of not talking to strangers and, and going into a stranger's house. And that tension is elevated. And then I feel in a way by... What we discover next and the fact that Cheryl Dempsey is discovered, but it is a little bit of a relief, I feel, for the audience knowing that Cheryl has been found regardless of her condition. I mean, obviously, it's, it's apparent that she is in very poor shape. But yeah, Chelsea, what do you think about that reveal? I did think it was interesting. It's hard to separate that reveal with what eventually happens to her that we, we all know having watched the movie. So it's hard to be like, yay, they found her alive. But I feel like for a split second there, I was like, oh, okay. I knew fairly early on in the movie that they were not going to find out the identity of the killer. And not just because they didn't come right out and say it in the beginning, but because of the way they were building up his legend. I felt like they could not have a conclusion where they actually catch him, which spoiler alert, they did not. (laughs) But for a split second, I guess I did think maybe Cheryl would have a happy ending. So joke's on me. See, I think that kind of jumping back into right before the discovery scene, you talk about that scary scene with the Girl Scouts. Like that scene is not like you can see that you can feel the tension between the conversation between him and the girls. But I feel like it really elevates when what you think is a, a table is actually when when Cheryl obviously, you know, she's looking at him. She has on the mask and she's on all fours like that was just one of the creepiest scenes in the film. Uh, a really intense point for us to you know start winding the story down where you know the investigators work describe their work to give a post-rescue interview with Cheryl herself so they get to interview Cheryl and this part I felt was extremely difficult to watch I guess it was really of an indicator of just how severe and awful her time with this serial killer was not that we weren't all thinking about how awful that was the whole time but but just thinking about how um, the recovery aspect of it and the fact that it wasn't a happy ending and and that it was pretty apparent that she was not going to be okay I think it's one of those moments in the film where you obviously see the the evidence of eight years uh, because even right before that interview scene she's interviewing her mother and her mother's talking about how she kept saying when she woke up I want to go home I want to go home and they finally brought her home after being in the hospital for a week and she kept saying I want to go home I want to go home because you know that's the kind of you can kind of clearly see that this this uh all of this is really damaged and broken her and even when she's watching the interview or even when she's doing the interview you can see I I don't know what you want me to say because you know she's been in submission for so long yeah and I think that coming at that from again more of the the true crime fan aspect. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome is a real thing. It is people who are abducted, who are held, held captive against their will, and they come to sympathize with their abductors. And there are many, many, many recorded cases of this. Some are more serious than others. And you see... You know, I'm quite a bit of the psychological torture that Cheryl has gone through. 99% of the cases that I've heard about with Stockholm Syndrome 
being freed from that scenario, you do kind of snap back. And you have women that are held captive for years and years and years who are tortured and raped and they can be compliant with the person who is holding them captive. But even when they're suffering from Stockholm syndrome, if they have a chance to escape, you know, they'll, they'll take it. You know, no one really loses that. You know, no one really forgets, you know, to the level that Cheryl did. But again, this is a movie. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going to be, you know, super reminiscent of these real cases. So it's, and it's sad and it's, it's, very sad what ultimately happens to her character which is that she commits suicide yeah absolutely and um you know one of the things we uh you know josh josh talks about a lot on victims and villains um and you know we just wanted to point you in the right direction for resources um if you are um having a mental health crisis so you know if you are please call the national suicide hotline it is 1-800-273-8255 also victimsandvillains.net has a lot of great resources so i just want to say thank you josh for providing all of those avenues for people to get help yeah thanks man and uh if you're not a a talker uh we provide all of our uh we're always a lending ear to people that are uh in need of it but you guys can also text uh the suicide national suicide lifeline as well it's uh 741741 and um with that you know uh it kind of wraps up the story of Cheryl until there's a stinger at the end, which we discover that, in fact, the serial killer has not stopped. We'll let you guys watch the movie. We'll hold back this spoiler as to what exactly happened. So you're going to have to uh, check that out. Or actually, I think we briefly mentioned it in uh, Josh's episode. Listen to that as well. So that is the Poughkeepsie tapes. If I said that right, we're going to have to do a voiceover. You did great. That's excellent. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I gotta have a joke that runs throughout the entire episode sometimes, right, guys? All right. So, um, yeah, go check that out. Uh, the movie itself is available on Scream Factory, Blu-ray, and DVD. They are not a sponsor, but we love them. A lot of our horror library is filled with films from their library. So um, we just wanted to say thank you so much, Josh, from Victims and Villains podcast. Wanted to point you all in the direction to the crossover episode i think they make a great companion piece and um josh how can we find you on social media so we are all on uh social media we have face facebook and instagram it's at victims and villains and twitter it's also at victims and villains but there is no eyes except for the last eye in villain very cool thanks so much josh and we just want to say thanks to all of our listeners we love you guys and want to to remind you to if you have not check us out on social media as well instagram at based on your crew on a what <laughs> based on a true crime twitter true crime based facebook based on a true crime podcast and our website where you can find all of that good stuff based on a true crime.com email us at based on a true crime at gmail.com now just have to remind you all death is but a door and time is but a window we'll be back Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.